prison. So um, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. My name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here. Thank you for joining with us. Thanks for being a part of this church. If you're not yet a member, we'd encourage you to pursue that. If you don't have a local church, we'd encourage you to ask questions to find a local church. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. We've been in a series in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Last week we saw um, all of the different characteristics of love. And then now we're going to look at the fact that, that love, it, it doesn't stop. It never ends. Because Paul wants us to be envisioned with the, the greatness of God's love for us. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll be reading verses 8 to 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you promised to, to give to all who are thirsty and hungry for you, Lord. You promised to give us the water of life. You promise to fill us with your spirit. You promise to give all who ask more of yourself. So Lord, we ask you this morning for you. We ask you to fill us this morning with your spirit. We ask for you to, to give us your living water. We ask for you to satisfy our, our weary hearts, our hungry souls. God, I pray that, that you would do this. And Lord, thank you that you promise to satisfy all who come to you. God, may we be satisfied in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been estimated, did a lot, a lot of studies on love in the last couple weeks. There's about 100 million songs have been published on love. That's a lot of songs. 100 million songs written about love. According to a study of the trends of the top U.S. Uh, top 40 songs over the last 60 years, since 1950 onwards, they did a study of over 1,040 top 40 songs, and the predominant theme in all of those top 40 songs, it's no surprise, the theme of love dominated over 67% of all top 40 songs are about love and relationships. Some would say that, I was reading an article and there was a couple advocates for the fact that, that Whitney Houston's song, I Will Always Love You, is, is the greatest love song of all time because of her vocals and attention, emotional performance. My wife would probably argue she liked Dolly Parton better. <laughs> According to a Billboard study of the top 50 love songs at all times, though, Endless Love, I barely remember that, 
It was a song published in 1981 by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie. It, it came in at number one of all the top Billboard songs in the last 60 years. Why is that? Why is love such a subject of all of the songs in human history? Why is love sang about so much? I think it's because there is a longing in the human heart for this kind of love, for endless love. There's a reason why endless love was the top song in the last 60 years. There is a longing in every human heart for love that will never end. And how do we know that? There's a grief that happens when love does end. That's unlike any other grief. There's a longing for the kind of marriage where love never fails. There's a longing in every human heart to be sure of love, to rely on love, to be able to trust in love. We want a love that's always going to last and always going to be there. We want love that will never end. It's the source of our greatest griefs and struggles and trials when we don't have or feel or know that love ourselves. But the Apostle Paul tells us some really good news. He, he tells us about something that, that we have that is not ever going to end. He tells us about a love that never ends. And, and that really, that's the first idea that he's wanting to get across to us, is that love is eternal. Now, now, maybe not the kind of love that we've experienced. If love is based on our feelings or emotions or actions, then, then no, it's not eternal. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of love and a love specifically that is eternal. I want you to look back at the first three verses of chapter 13. If you have a Bible, open it up. If you have a smartphone, go to the first three verses of chapter 13. Paul, he's presenting some, some hypothetical scenarios about love. He says, if I was doing all these things and I didn't have love, he says, if I had this most spectacular gift of tongues and yet didn't have love, I'd just be noise. If, if I was able to prophesy, if I had all knowledge and I understood all things, if I had all wisdom but I didn't have love, I would actually be nothing. And then he says, you know, if I had that faith that can move mountains, I would be nothing. If, if I gave my whole life, if I gave up everything I have and, and gave my life to be burned at the stake, to have martyred myself, and I didn't have love, it would amount to, it would be worth nothing. And then notice in verses four to seven, he writes about love with a different tense. He doesn't say, if I, don't, if I have these things and don't have love. Now he, he changes the tense and he says, love is, and he describes love. And we went through that last week about what true love really is, what it looks like, what it's described as. It's personified. describes what love does and why love's supreme. And now he writes something that's astounding about love. He writes that love never ends. I think it's meant to cultivate a desire in our hearts. Desire in our hearts for what isn't temporal, what isn't partial, that isn't flawed. A desire in our hearts for love that doesn't end. But what is he talking about? You know, after all, for many, love does end. For many people, love fizzles out in breakups and divorce and abuse. And love ends slowly through inattention and neglect. For others, love ends in death. So what is he writing about when he writes that love never ends? If love's defined in relation to ourselves, if love's just an emotion, 
If love is just something we do or experience or feel, then love does end, doesn't it? But he's not defining love based on us and our emotions, our feelings, our behavior. He's writing about a perfect love, a forever love. He's, he's writing about a love that will never cease to exist. It's a motivating love. The only way for us to know that kind of love is it's outside of us. If, if you are an unbeliever here this morning and you've not experienced that love, here's the good news. You can experience the kind of love that never ends, the kind of love that's outside of you doesn't depend upon you. The kind of love that's very different, it, it, it never ends and it would change our life forever when we experience it. It's the answer to all the deepest longing of the human heart. But then he draws a contrast. He draws a contrast. He says, love never ends. He's gonna come back to why He's going to come back to the greatness of love, but he's contrasting the greatness of love here with the, the partiality, the, the temporary nature of, of our experiences here on earth. And, and he's contrasting it with the gifts of the Spirit. He's been correcting the, the use or the uh, abuse of the gifts of the Spirit in the Corinthians by saying, you've been practicing these good gifts, they're good, I want you to eagerly desire them, but you've been doing that without love, so I want to explain what love is. And then, on, in order to do that, in order to practice the spiritual gifts in love, you have to be motivated by love, and so he says love never ends. But then in comparison, he says, you've been acting like these spiritual gifts last forever, but he tells him, no, the gifts of the Spirit, they're partial, they're temporary. That's the second thing that he wants him to see, that the gifts of the Spirit, they are temporary and partial. Point number two, the, the gifts of the Spirit are temporary and partial. Now, what he's saying, he's, he's not saying that the gifts of the Spirit have gone away already. No matter what you, how you come to this verse, with what are preconceived notions, that you're not going to find that in the text here. He, he is not saying, I don't want you to pursue the spiritual gifts. No, he says, I want you to pursue them, but I want you to pursue them with a the motive of love. Understanding that these things are partial and temporary and, and what you need to see is that love will never end. He's going to go on to encourage, he already has encouraged the church to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. And he says, I want you to earnestly desire the higher gifts and I'm going to show you a greater way. And now he says, um, in, in chapter 14, he's going to say, I want you to eagerly desire spiritual gifts again, especially that you might prophesy. But right now he says that, you know, eventually all these spiritual gifts that I am encouraging you to pursue, they're going to pass away. That's not the goal. It's not the be-all and the end-all. They are a means by which we experience the blessings and love of the Holy Spirit, by which we experience the person of the Holy Spirit. He says the gift of tongues, and he's grateful for Actually, he's so grateful for it. Later on, he's going to say in verse 8 of chapter 14, he says, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than you all. And that's, he continues to speak in tongues. He, he holds prophecy to, in high regard because he's going to encourage them to pursue prophecy. And then later on, he's going to continue to encourage them to, to pursue those gifts, which include the gifts of knowledge. But right now, he says, as for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they're going to cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. At the outset of the letter, though, he, he encouraged them. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 1.5, he says, uh, he, th he thanks God because in every way they were enriched in him in all speech, in all knowledge. In chapter 12, he talks about the diversity of the gifts for the church today, in that day. 
He says, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge. He's talking about a particular gift of the Spirit, not just knowledge in general, but a, a gift of knowledge to understand and apply the wisdom of God. But now he writes, knowledge is going to pass away just like prophecy. How can that be? Well, he's clearly talking about a, a spiritual gift of knowledge because really even in the end when we go to be with Jesus, we're still going to know who he is. We're going to have knowledge. But he says, for now we know in part. That spiritual gift of knowledge is only partial. He says, we also prophesy in part. The gift of prophecy, it's, it's not like what we see in the Old Testament. We'll get to explaining that next chapter. But what he says is it's just in part. It's partial. It's incomplete. New Testament prophecy is in part. It's not complete. He doesn't seem to be talking about the flawless standard of prophecy from the Old Testament, but that's, he's not here trying to give a proof case for why prophecies for today he's, he's just making the assumption it is because it is and he's saying i want you to understand that though in the context of love all these gifts are temporary love won't end but these gifts they're temporary they'll all pass away so, so when will it pass away when will prophecy knowledge and tongues when do those things pass away he gives the answer in verse 10 he says when those gifts will pass away he says when the perfect comes the partial will pass away. These gifts, they're only going to part pass away. They'll only pass away when the perfect comes. And what does he mean by that? Does he mean just maturity? I don't think so, because Paul was already mature, and he still operated in the gifts. And he doesn't somehow pit maturity against the spiritual gifts or somehow say that if you're really mature, you'll no longer have gifts. That can't be the case. Jesus, the most mature man ever to walk the earth, operated in and practiced the spiritual gifts, so did the apostles. And there's nothing in the context to hint that he's talking about Scripture either. Paul, he seems to be, when he writes, self-aware that he's writing commands from God. He's writing Scripture. So when is he talking about when the perfect comes? At some point, soon after the apostles wrote, perhaps, would that be a little confusing for the church because he is encouraging one of his churches to pursue spiritual gifts, but not for the very long That'd be really confusing. They might be like wondering why. Well, how many years? What do you mean, Paul? What does it look like? It would be nonsensical. It would be confusing for Paul to encourage the church three times in chapters 12 and 14 to desire spiritual gifts earnestly and eagerly, but not really because they're really going to go away right now. No, that's not what he's saying. The perfect, it, it speaks of the return of Jesus, the, when he, the perfect one, comes. When, when all is completed, when, when we see him fully face to face. How do we know that? Because he tells us that in verse 12. When the perfect comes, he says, when we see face to face. He's not talking about seeing each other face to face. He's talking about seeing Christ, seeing God himself face to face. And when it comes to seeing God face to face, there's no longer any need for the partial gifts of the Spirit, even though we're encouraged to pursue them to build up the body. There's a theologian named Karl Barth. He once, he put it eloquently when he said, because the sun rises, all lights are extinguished. It doesn't mean that lights are unnecessary, but, but lights are only temporarily needed in the darkness until the sun rises. And so the spiritual gifts are needed here on earth. They are manifestations of the Spirit of God. They are gifts of God until the completion 
comes, until the perfect comes. And then he gives an example. You might be wondering, what's he doing? Look in verse 11. He gives an example now. He's, he's drawing a parallel between the, the current state, which is impartial, and then when will be fully complete and mature. And he, that comparison he draws is between being a child, it's like the life we live now, in comparison to the life we will live in heaven with him when the perfect comes, it's, it's comparison is like being a child compared to being an adult. And, and the gifts and the things that we're given, the way that we communicate, the, the, the way that we react or interrelate with each other, they are based on things that are not completed, not full, not perfect. We speak like children imperfectly. We think like children imperfectly and completely. He's not denigrating or downplaying the gifts of the Spirit. But, but when we become fully mature, fully complete, when we become, see him face to face, when the perfect comes, we'll, we'll no longer need those things. And he explains, he says, for now, right now, we see in a mirror dimly. You know, I was trying to think about what does this mirror dimly mean? You know, if you've ever taken a shower and there's fog or steam all over the shower, you can kind of see dimly. That, that might be a better analogy than you think, well, I see pretty clearly in my mirror because they didn't have the kinds of mirrors we have today. They, they, they had these hammered steel mirrors that they would hammer and polish, but they could easily become dented or smudged. And, and they really were just a dim reflection. They were vague or incomplete. He's saying right now, the present time, we only see things vaguely. We don't see perfectly. We see this vague representation of what truly will be when the perfect comes. Our sight, our knowledge are in part. Even the great apostle Paul, he's writing, he says, I know in part. We prophesy in part. I know in part. I I prophesy in part. But then he says... One day he shall know fully. When is, when is the perfect? Oh, it's when we see face to face. When we will know God fully even as we've been known. Now for Paul, he could only be talking about how Jesus, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit has fully known him. Do you know that if, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you have been fully known? Now, actually, for everyone, you are fully known by God. But he's talking about being known in a very special way, being known intimately, being known relationally. God's known him fully, completely, he writes. And the spirit of God that he writes about, even in Romans eight twenty seven, he says he searches hearts. You're known fully. Everything about you, everything, the way you think, the way you feel, the way you act, God knows. He sees you. And here's the amazing thing. Despite that, in, in, in spite of the fact that all of our weaknesses, all of our flaws, all of our failings, he loves us. And his love doesn't end. But he's writing of the day when we will see him face to face, when we will know him fully, and our knowing of God won't be hindered by any impediments. It won't be hindered by our weakness. It won't be hindered by any partial understanding of who God is. We're going to see him face to face, and we will know him fully. And that is when we'll no longer need all these gifts. For now we do. The gracious manifestations of of God's spirit for our good. The body might be built up, but they're not going to last forever. So they're, 
they're not greater somehow. The Corinthians had gotten into the mindset of pursuing the spiritual gifts as if that was the be-all and end-all of the spiritual life. Paul says, no, those are manifestations of the Spirit so that you might love God even more, so you might give thanks to God for them, and you might learn how to love each other with those spiritual gifts. They aren't the goal. They're a blessing, but they're temporary. One day that veil will be parted when Christ returns and all that is partial here on earth will pass away. Then the gifts of the Spirit won't be needed any longer because we'll be with him forever. We, don't, we won't need the imperfect because we'll be with the perfect one. We won't need to prophesy because all things will be brought to light. The building into Christ will be finished. Well, the ultimate encouragement. He says the gifts are for building up the encouragement and consolation of the body of Christ, and those are good things. But you know what? We'll be completely encouraged when we see Jesus face to face. We'll already be built up into him. We will have all the consolation we will ever require in Christ. We don't need the gift of tongues to be built up. We won't need tongues and interpretation and signs for unbelievers that he's going to talk about later because all of our work on earth will be done. We won't need somebody else to share the gift of knowledge because we will have face-to-face access to the, the one who is all knowledge himself. But in contrast to that, Paul says, love never ends. The gifts are temporary and partial, but love's eternal. That doesn't mean they're unimportant. You know, think of the fact that if you were to receive a down payment of a million dollars on an inheritance of a billion, you would not think that down payment right now is insignificant. You wouldn't think it was meaningless. You would appreciate it. You would enjoy it. You would spend it probably, knowing that more is coming. You would make use of it. Well, the spiritual gifts aren't any less important than the down payment on an inheritance is important. It's, they're valuable. It just isn't the full thing yet. I like the way David Garland says it. He says, the real transformation of the Christian into the glory of Christ does not take place until the resurrection and the new creation. The spirit received in this life is only a guarantee of this future transformation. When you experience the gifts of the spirit, it's a guarantee of the future transformation, but it is not the final thing itself. So we want to encourage the pursuit of the spiritual gifts in this church, but don't become so enamored with that that you think that that is the goal of the Christian life. No, the goal of the Christian life is, is actually the transformation itself that we will experience when we see him face to face. When Christ returns, this new resurrection, the new creation, our faith will be made sight. All our hopes will be realized. And then he says, for now... And then he introduces two new things, two new virtues. He says, for now, faith and hope and love, these things remain. But he says, love is the greatest. That's, his, that's the third thing he's drawing our attention to in this passage. He says, love is the greatest. Now you may be wondering, Paul, what are you doing? Where do these two ideas come from? Why did you add faith and hope along with love? Well, because faith and hope and love, this is triad. These, these were defining virtues of Christians in Paul's day. And it's really defining virtues of of Christians in our day as well. We're defined by where we place our faith, who we place our faith in, who we hope in, what we hope in. We're defined by who loves us and who we love. And, and, And you think, well, I just want to have that kind of faith that Abraham had. And that's good because that faith remains 
I want to have that kind of hope that is sure and lasting and stable and unwavering. And that's good. And that hope remains for now. But love is even greater than faith and hope. Did you ever think about that? Love is even greater than faith and hope. It's the greatest of the virtues of, of Christianity. Why? Because love will go on endlessly. Love remains. Love is eternal. He, he's not wanting the, the Corinthians to think that the spiritual gifts are what the ultimate goal of the Christian life is or somehow we can use the gifts apart from love. He wants them to see that, that no, love is the greatest. No matter what your relationship with or pursuit of the spiritual gifts looks like today, love is the way we're to pursue them and love is the greatest gift. For now, we have faith, we have hope. Although when Christ returns, our faith is gonna be realized. Won't that be great? When... When Christ the perfect comes, our hope will be fulfilled. If you think about it, faith, faith is an active trust in God, and so to some degree, yes, we'll always and forever be only able to stand before God by grace through faith, but our faith will be sight. And to some degree, in a similar way, when the perfect comes, our hope, it definitely will be fulfilled, but I'm, I'm guessing we're still gonna hope for the future Throughout all of eternity, we're still looking forward in anticipation of growing in the reality of our knowledge of God and growing in affection for God, growing in understanding him. So there'll be continual ongoing hope in a sense. But love will never be diminished, never change. It will only grow, only increase. That's why love's the greatest. After all, doesn't scripture say that, that God is love? 1 John 4 John, he describes really not only what love is, but our response to love. And he says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Love originated with God. So we're to love one another because love originates with God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you love God, if you've been born of God, you will love other people. Anyone who does not love does not know God. So he's saying if you don't see evidences of love for God and others, it may be that you do not know God. He says because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. How's love manifest? Oh, he says it's manifest in God sending his only son so we might live through him. Love has been manifest in, in the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. So love isn't defined by us. It's not defined by our feelings or our experience or our behavior. Love, he says, is not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation or the turning away of God's wrath for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in his love abides in God and God abides in him. John explains, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 
But what do we do when our love doesn't meet up with the definition of love that we've seen in 1 Corinthians? When it's not patient, when it's not kind, when it is arrogant, when it does boast, when it is self-seeking, when it does keep a record of wrongs? What do we do? (laughs) What do we do? If you were here last week, Hopefully, like me, you experience some conviction. And I hope that there is a pursuit of repentance and change. But what do we do? How do we, how do we do that? What's the motivation for that? When it's hard to love our spouses, when it's hard to love our children, when it's hard to love our parents, our family, our friends, and even harder to love our neighbors, and then seemingly impossible to love our enemies, how do you do that? Paul's talking to a church that would have been experiencing conviction as well. He wants them to pursue the gifts, but he's saying, you're not doing it lovingly. Now they're convicted, but then how do we do that? How do we, how do we love? How do we even love with the gifts? What does that look like? That's why these verses are here, because Paul wants us to see the greatness of love, because that's where our ability and our motivation to love comes from. From seeing that, that God's love for us never ends. God's love for us is eternal. That's the kind of love we've been given That's the only way then we can actually obey these verses and love one another. It's the only way we can express love for God is if we understand God's love for us. Recently I was struggling with anger and unforgiveness. I was reminded of Matthew 18. God graciously brought that to mind where Jesus was telling Peter, his beloved apostle, he was telling him the parable of a man who who owed astronomical debt that he could never repay. And he goes to a king and he pleads. And it says the king forgave him, not because he asked, but because he had pity or, or a loving mercy upon him. He forgave him completely of all of his debt, his, his unpayable debt, his debt that he would be multiple lifetimes to repay. But what does that servant do? He turns around, he was ungrateful. He, he really failed to be affected by this pity, this loving kindness of the king. And so he goes and he chokes his fellow servant for a third of a year's wages, a significant amount, but nothing in comparison to lifetimes of debt. Peter's, I mean, Jesus is talking to Peter here. And, and in the parable, the king reprimands the servant. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you of everything and couldn't you forgive? Could you not keep a record of wrongs? I wiped away the record of all your wrongs. Problem is, he had forgotten how much he'd been forgiven. He'd forgotten the pity, the love that the king had on him. And it was expected by the king that that love would be a motive. It would, be the, it would give him the ability to see others differently in light of what he'd been forgiven. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I want you to see, I want you to love like this, but then I want you to see that love never ends. The gifts, you're pursuing these as if that's the epitome of the Christian life, but what I want you to understand is that love is really what the gifts are given for, so that you might love God and love other people even more, so you might build the body up. Why? Because you love them. So don't don't cease pursuing the spiritual gifts, but do it in love. And how can you do that? How do you begin? Oh, see that love never ends. Love is eternal. He wants us to experience the great love of the Father. It's the love that motivated God to send his son to come and die for us. The love that motivated the son to condescend, to become a human, 
to take our place, to take all of our sins, that we might be forgiven. His justice might be fulfilled. Love motivated the son to rescue sinful man by taking our place. This is the love that never ends. This is the love that is the greatest. Love is the cause for the son to be willing rejected by his own creation, to submit himself to mistreatment, to mockery, to abuse and all the pain of sinful humanity, to be abused and killed at the hands of sinful men. Love is what motivated and love defined Jesus. Love is why Jesus prayed when he was on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. How could how could anyone say that when they're being crucified? How could anyone pray for the forgiveness of those who are crucifying them unless there was true love? Of all the virtues and characteristics of God's people, love's the greatest because it's the most foundational of all virtues. We love because he first loved us. And love's the greatest because when the perfect comes, we're not gonna need any of those other spiritual gifts because we'll know him face to face. But sometimes we forget. Sometimes we act like love is dead. There's an old movie that is often repeated in my house. It's called The Princess Bride. And in The Princess Bride, Wesley, he confronts Buttercup for not waiting for him. And he says, Wesley says, I told you I would always come for you. Why didn't you wait for me? Buttercup says, well, you were dead. Wesley says, death cannot stop true love. All I can do is delay it for a while. Buttercup says, I will never doubt again. Wesley said, there will never be a need. That's great, but it's a fairy tale. We're often like Buttercup, though. We act as if our love is dead. Love never ends. Our greatest love has been resurrected truly. His love will never stop. We have no need to doubt his love for us because Jesus has been raised from the dead. We should never doubt again. One day we're gonna be with the ultimate love, God himself who is love, so the gifts of the Spirit, they're wonderful. And we're going to continue to, to focus on that because that's what Paul will do. But for now, he wants to see the only, the only way to practice and pursue that is with the motive of God's love for us. And then we, we in turn pursue those spiritual gifts by pursuing love or pursue love by pursuing the spiritual gifts. Because we have his spirit, we know that God abides in us and we abide in him. The gifts are wonderful, but they're temporary. They're a manifestation of the spirit of God himself. That's really amazing. But they're meant to show us that, that because we see the Holy Spirit at work, we can be sure that God loves us. The greatest way, though, that people can know that we're disciples of Jesus, our greatest witness, our greatest testimony, is that people would see that we love one another. So don't ever let our pursuit of the spiritual gifts replace loving one another. Let them be a means by which we do that. Motivated by his endless love. 
I, I love how D.A. Carson put it when he wrote in his book, Showing the Spirit. He says, the greatest evidence that heaven has invaded our sphere, that the Spirit has been poured out upon us, that we are citizens of the kingdom, not yet consummated, is Christian love. Jonathan Edwards actually said that, that the, the way that people can tell that heaven has broken through into the lives of people and, and, and how the church can most look like heaven is by loving each other. Paul wants the church to not get things out of order, to not lose focus. So we want to encourage the church to eagerly desire the gifts, the higher gifts, especially they might prophesy, but, but that's not the goal. The goal is to exercise the gifts as a means of loving one another and actually a means of loving God for the great gifts he has given to us. And the really, the, the big idea, if you're going to walk away with something, is that to pursue love because we have the greatest love. Pursue loving each other in, in every aspect of life, in every area of life. Pursue loving each other because we have the greatest love. Let yourself be affected by the fact that love never ends and that love is the greatest and we've been given the greatest love. Spiritual gifts, they're not the criteria or the goal of the Christian life. They're the means of pursuing love. They're means of loving our neighbor. In any practice of the gifts is because we want to love God. We want to love others more so that we're all built up in love. Love's both the motive and in the object. It's superior. So where do we go from here? How do, how do we, what do we do? How do we apply this? Let's remember the love we have that never ends. Let's remember that we have the greatest love. Let's see that the gifts are valuable for building up the body. There are means by which we can love each other. So let's pursue them out of love. Now, maybe some of us become more enamored with gifts or more enamored with abilities or more enamored with service and where we think those things are greater, hear Paul's correction and say, no, love's greater. If our heart, our focus has been on other things, let's get our hearts right. And let's let his, his description of love, let it bring conviction and repentance and also desire to move forward together in love. He's given his spirit's gifts to us as a sign of his love. He's always going to love us. And the, the love that he's given to us, it's the greatest. And may that inspire and empower us to love each other even more. Let's pray. The band, go ahead and come up. We'll close. Jesus, thank you that where our love ends and is fickle and frail and weak, oh, your love never is. Your love never ends. Thank you that we've been given the greatest love. And, and Lord, thank you that you've given us these temporary gifts, this, these down payments on the experience of your spirit of experience of you in the gifts of the Spirit. But Lord, may we pursue these things out of a response to your love and out of a desire to love. God, for each and every one of us here who's forgotten how much we're loved, would you impress upon us and remind us of your great love? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing. Mm -hmm.